I'm Linda Laurel, creator and host of Our Voices Matter. Why this podcast and why now? Because it's time for us all to take a deep breath and listen. I am a journalist, business owner, keynote speaker, founder of an education nonprofit, wife, mother, daughter, sister, dancer, and lover of life, and my country. And like so many of you, I am deeply distressed at the deteriorating level of discourse in our democracy. This podcast is my humble attempt to do something about it, one story at a time. It is my hope that as you listen to and watch the stories of someone you might consider to be the other, that you will somehow see a glimpse of yourself and be reminded of our common humanity. So what do you say? Let's take this journey together. Welcome to Our Voices Matter, a podcast dedicated to empowering us all to better understand each other. Our goal, to replace fear with knowledge, disdain with respect, and hate with love, one story at a time. So let's get to it. Hi, everybody. I'm Linda Morrell. Thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Our Voices Matter. You know, when I decided to do this podcast, I wanted to make sure that we get voices of every age, every ethnicity, every ideology so that we can all share our stories. And I'm particularly excited to have this young woman sitting here with me today. I actually have known Steph Cantu since you applied for a scholarship from the Linda Laurel Scholarship Fund. So how old were you then? I was, uh, look at this, I was, I must have been 16, 16. Yeah. 16 years old. A junior in high school. Almost half of my life. Wow. <laughs> Amazing. You're big 31 now. Yes, 31. yes. Yes. So um, tell me when you applied for that scholarship to go to college. One of the things that you had to do was to write an essay about what your life was like at that moment in time and what your goals and aspirations were and how you would use the scholarship to go to college and better your life. So tell us what was going on in your life at that time, what you wrote in that essay. You know, I just I had to take a breath as you were um, reminding me and I just kind of placed myself in that time and day and where I was. And just going back and writing that essay was really the first time where I had an opportunity to share my story and share it on paper and really use it as, um, I guess, like a selling point, not a selling point. Maybe that's the wrong word as a um, a positive motive. This is a positive motive. And so at currently when I was 16 at that time, filling out the essay. Oh man, I had four part-time jobs. Four, um, four, four part-time jobs. Four part-time jobs. Wow. I was also a member of an after-school program, JROTC. We were number one in the city, so it was very demanding. And so I remember I would finish practice every day from 3.30 to 5.30, sometimes six. I would change and run, go to work every single day. And I would work till midnight. And it was the same thing every day. On top of that, I, you know, everything, this, the school load, the workload that yeah, we had. Yeah, so when did you study? Um, so <laughs> somehow I think back and ask myself, how did I do it? You know, but that willpower and determination, it just drives you really, it drives you forward. 
And so why did I have four part-time jobs? Well, um, my brother, my father was always in and out of prison since growing up. He struggled with alcoholism. He was a very angry man. So in my house, there was always yelling, screaming, and um, we didn't know how to communicate. Um, that's how the communication was in my house. So when I was 13, he went to prison. He was sentenced to six years in prison. And from 13, from 2000, I remember it's New Year's in 2000. That was our New Year's going into 2000. Your dad is not going to be in prison. He's not coming back home. But at the same time, it was kind of relief. It was a relief for my family. It allowed us to really come together and unite. But then the financial struggle is what followed. So I I was 13 and I, I remember telling myself, what can I do to help my mom? So I started working when I was 13. I picked up babysitting jobs. And then from then, I just, once I turned of age, then I started, I worked as a hostess and they only give you a certain amount of hours. So I, I got another part-time job and just picked up seasonal jobs. So um, that just, it was just how life was. Just how life was. Did you have siblings? I did. I am the youngest of three. Um, so we all just kind of really stuck together and worked hard to kind of relieve some of that burden that my mom had. So your story, um, you know, when we gave you that, that scholarship, um, I remember, I remember giving it to you, and um, I want to, I want to ask you what that felt like to know that there were people outside of your immediate environment mm-hmm. that extended a hand, encouraged you to dream big and beyond what your current circumstance was. Right. What did that, what did that do for you? Oh, it just, it brought, I should, I I was a lot, I allowed, it kind of helped me see myself through different lenses. Um, Mm -hmm. I think back of not just my immediate circumstances, but I always saw myself as the little person, right? I always saw myself less than. I think back of, you know, where the background of my parents, my, both of my parents only have a second grade education. My Mother did not have a bed until she was 18. She slept. Did your parents grow up here? In Mexico. So both of my parents um, came from Mexico when they were 21 um, with the clothes they had on their back and no language, right? And second grade education. And so that and my mom, she picked up housekeeping jobs. So she cleaned houses and I would go and help her. And so I was the help. And so I was in comparison when I would you know, think of college, when I would think of professionals, I thought, well, I cleaned the houses of these people. And so I saw myself less than and not, like I wasn't quite there. However, when I filled out the scholarship, I started, it kind of awoke, it woke something up within me. And I said, hey, this is why I can and I must. And receiving that scholarship just kind of solidified it and saying, you can do this. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter where you come from, um, your level of education. It's like how hard are you willing to work? And you have people that believe in you. And that gave me, it's just, you know, I, I say it over and over how the Linda Laurel Scholarship is near and dear to my heart because it just, it allowed me to see myself through different lenses. Well, it, it fills, fills my heart to hear you 
you say that, and I, I don't mean this to sound like we're trying to pat ourselves on the back, but you know, this whole this whole show, this whole podcast is really about trying to encourage people, encourage each other, and that's that's obviously what the scholarship fund does. But you know, you, you talked about feeling less than, mm-hmm. and um, clearly that is something that has stuck with you, but it motivated you. Right. to go on and and do what you're doing now. So let's fast forward a little bit mm-hmm. and share with our audience uh, your trajectory from the time that you actually received the scholarship. Tell us where you went to college and then what's been happening since then. Okay, so much. <laughs> so <laughs> much life has lived. And, you know, I see myself sometimes and I, I meditate every single morning and I, I meditate on everything that where I was and where I am now and what I see the future and never in a million years would I imagine that I am where I am now and living the life and doing the things and allowing myself to receive the blessings that I am that I have now so I graduated in 2005 and I went to Texas A&M Yes, Aggie. Yes. So I am wearing my ring. Um, So, yeah, I went to Texas A&M. I graduated in 2009 from Texas A&M with a degree in interdisciplinary studies. I initially went to A&M for mechanical engineering. And mid-halfway, it was my, between sophomore and junior year, I was tutoring at the Boys and Girls Club. Mm And I was tutoring a little girl, and I still remember her name, and I envision her face. I close my eyes, and I see her face. What's her name? Briasia. Briasia. And it was a boys and girls club off off of MLK and Brian. And so she was a tough little girl, first grade, and she, her communication and just her, her, the way she carried herself, she was so certain of herself. Mm -hmm. But one day, I... I I went to work and uh, she was crying. She was crying and she was upset and she would not talk to anybody. And I approached her just gently and asked her, is there anything you want to talk about? No. Okay, when you're ready, you can talk to me. And I just gave her her space. And just a few minutes later, she she goes up to me and stuff. I'm ready to talk. And she ends up telling me this story of how her brothers and sisters were separated. Mom went to prison. She's confused. She doesn't know what's going on in her world. And that is when I knew that I needed to change majors. The connection that I was able to make with her and the mentorship I was able to provide, um, it was just a sign saying, hey, maybe education is a better place for you. Maybe that this is where you need to be. And I truly believe that our stories are given to us for a reason. And so you can say, oh, poor me, why is all of this happening? Or you can say, how can I use this to help others? And that's when I changed majors and went into education. So I graduated with interdisciplinary studies and I went into elementary. And that's where I started my career as an educator now. And uh, this is my second year now teaching for HISD. So I traveled a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived in different places. My second year back in Houston since leaving for A&M. And I just, it just teaching for HISD, I am a product of HISD. And being able to give back to the community, it's just, it, it brings so much, such a reward. It's such a reward. It's, in, it's something that 
I, you know, often you hear educators aren't paid enough. However, the reward that you get in seeing those students and, the, and how you impact their lives is the reward every day, most days. <laughs> oh, man, you're making me tear up. You really are. Um, what a beautiful spirit you have. Okay, I want to talk about your current school, but before I've got to ask, how, what happened with Gracia? Um, I... Do you, well, I mean, I, yeah, do, we were able to help her. Yes, yeah, so we provided mentorships, and yeah. we provided her with different resources, and and just just the mentorship that she needed at the time. Yeah. We were just there, you know, for a tutoring program. However, right. because she was able to communicate that, we were able to help and provide the human connection. That. When you said Absolutely. that, that's just that's what it's about. It's about that human connection. Right. You recognized that she needed that, and now that you've made that your life's work. Right. So the school that you're teaching in now here in Houston and in HISD mm-hmm. um, is a school that has a lot of refugee children. Yes. Tell us about that. Oh, well, we have, so we, um, it's often referred to it as a newcomer school. So we have families from Iran, families from Iraq. We have people from Venezuela, um, Guatemala, Honduras. So any given day, you can hear with just passing through the halls, maybe five, six, seven different languages on any given day. Um, so we, these students, they come in and we, they have seen so much in their little lives. And, and what grade are you teaching? I'm teaching first grade. You're teaching first grade yes. and teaching in bilingual, so English and Spanish. Correct. Yes. So. Um, the refugee population is very much um, in the center of the news these days. Right. How does that affect the student population? What do you see? What are you seeing and hearing? What is there anything different? Um, we see, for example, this year we had an influx of um, students from Venezuela. So it's a reflection of what's going on in you know, everything, their financial system and the struggles that they're going through. Um, we had some people, some families from um, Puerto Rico when, you know, the hurricane. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So we see a direct connection between what's going on financially in other countries or um, different mm-hmm. maybe um, disasters that are, are going right. on as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely increases the population, the, the number of students that we have in our classrooms. What kind of conversations are there, I'm wondering, um, among the, just say among the staff, knowing that you're dealing with an immigrant population right. um, within the context of the national dialogue that's happening? Do you guys talk about that? Or, I mean, I would imagine that, that, that there's a direct effect in terms of just the, um, how people are feeling and what they're thinking and what right. their thoughts and fears might be so absolutely so um are we also the, the, the neat thing about the school is we have a diverse student body and we also have a diverse um, faculty and for example just the first grade team is composed of um of a person from turkey a person from um pakistan and so um, we have a person from, um, I want to say, Korea. So oh, it's, we're mm-hmm. just very diverse right. in itself. So if you think about, if you go into the lunchroom, then you hear conversations and the, the, our dialogue is, tell me about life in Pakistan. Um, tell me about life in, you know, in, in Turkey. How was life there? And so our, it's, it's as though, you know, I think back of, 
my background and the school I went to and the conversations that I was having and who I was surrounded with. And it was just people like me. Right. And anything that was not like me, I was uncomfortable. I wasn't sure. I didn't know how to start a conversation. And so as a, as a working with a population of students that are from different countries, it brings curiosity into our minds. And we are curious to know how life was in other different countries. And we just expand our perspective to, hey, there are different worlds. It's kind of like it's from going from an egocentric point of view where it's us and them to more of a, um, a worldly perspective. World, global perspective. Actually, absolutely, global. Which is so interesting to hear you say that because the, the political dialogue or the political direction that our current administration has taken mm-hmm. uh, is more about America first, and it's not so much about the globalization and embracing all of these other countries. Right. Um, what do you, I mean, given what you just said, because clearly you think that the, the diversity and the, the global perspectives are an asset. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts, given how you feel about that, and then what we're seeing in, in our country today? It hits really close to home because, you know, before, let's say that you just stay with, you know, your neighborhood and what you're used to, then it's it's still you still have the egocentric point of view where it's just, well, it's just it's just something that's going on in this world. But when you're constantly surrounded by you know just different populations and different ethnicities, then it it's it's you know, it it just it upsets you. What do you think is the if you could if you could try to convince someone about the, um, I guess, about how you feel as it relates to um, immigration and the globalization and just the inclusiveness of other people's points of view, where they come from, et cetera. What's, what's missing, do you think, that people who believe the opposite of you mm-hmm. don't understand? What is it that you could say that would help sort of maybe um, open their minds a bit to what your point of view is? Mm-hmm. What would I say? Um, you know, when I was, um, I, I do a lot of personal development. I read a lot of personal development books. When in the mix of my struggle at 13, I came across a book. Um, my first personal development book, and it was Chicken Soup for the Soul. Mm-hmm. I know it. For the teenage soul. And that's the first time that I truly realized that everybody has a story. Everybody has a story. And sometimes we get so caught up in our own struggles, in our own problems, and so problem-focused that we forget that others are struggling as well. And it so what would I say to somebody who maybe is not open to it is we all have a story and if you have a means to help somebody, then there's a way to help them. <laughs> maybe there's always a solution to a problem and I'm just realizing I think a lot of the, the human connection is missing. Um, and having empathy for others um, and just finding some kind of way in and saying, you know, put yourself, maybe not, it's, it'll be too hard for some people to know what it feels like 
but just hearing their stories will really open up. And I hear some sometimes my students share stories of them being in the detention facilities and their families splitting up and them not knowing where their nine-year-old brother was because they were taken from mom. And it just, and you hear them and they're six years old and they've seen this firsthand and just hearing the stories really humanizes everything. So you have actually had students in your classroom whose parents they've been separated from. Yes as a result of coming across the border? Yes. Have any of those students been reunited with their families yet? Yes. yes. All of them? Um, yes. Hopefully? Yes. And we have students that just disappeared. We don't know what, where they what are. What do you mean? Um, they, they, they're not in school. We, we visit their home address. They're no longer there. These families are no longer there. What happened to these families? Um, is it because they're scared? Um, they just they left the country because of fear, or we don't know. It's so interesting. Um, I'm just I'm thinking. You know, I, I see the faces of these of these children, and when children are brought across the border by their families, you know, obviously it's not the child's fault, and. Um, the other side of that story is, you know, those who believe that families should only come here legally. Mm-hmm. And even if they're fleeing um, dire circumstances in other parts of the world, um, they should not be allowed to come into our country and be um, be basically taken care of, be educated and, and fed and clothed and housed and, and mm-hmm. all of that. Um and there's a there's a very strong argument for that. And I, you know, I mean, legal's legal, right? Right. right. Legal's legal. But to me, I mean, I guess I guess there are there, there's so many gray areas when it comes to this. But somehow we always have to remember the human side of it. So I don't know. There's a question in there somewhere. But I guess um, when you, especially because you are in the middle of it and you see firsthand the impact of the policies on these families and these children. Mm-hmm. Um, other than saying, we need to listen to their stories, is there anything else that you can offer in terms of a perspective to help us better understand the impact? One of the dads of a family that came from Venezuela, he was putting it into perspective for me. And he said, you know, it's so hard for a lot of Americans to see what just how much Venezuela is struggling financially. It would take them three months, three to four months to accumulate enough money and wages to buy a quarter pounder. Three months of wages. Like a McDonald's quarter pounder. Yeah. To be able to buy a quarter pounder. Wow. You know, they may, may maybe get one egg a week, you know, and just putting things into perspective in ways. Right. I think sometimes we're so privileged um, that it's hard for us to wrap our brains about what struggle actually is. And if, so going back to your question, now that I think of it is, well, what else can we do besides bring that human connection is bring putting things in terms in ways that we can understand, like three months worth of wages to buy one quarter pounder. You say, wow. Mm-hmm. And just and in a language, some, some absolutely. So perspective and finding ways in which we can talk to each other in ways that we will actually understand. When you talked about 
um, feeling less than when you were growing up. Mm -hmm. Um, I can imagine that many of your, your students also feel that way, feel less than, feel shunned, whatever. Mm -hmm. What do you say to them based on your own experience and how you were able to overcome that Mm -hmm. or how you were able to, I don't know if it's something you overcome, but you deal with it. Right. So what's your advice to them? There's a, I'll give you an example. In my class, we have a morning precepts and we stand up and we repeat four things. Say, I am worthy is number one. So I am worthy and just repeating that over and over. I am worthy. I am loved. I am exceptional. Every day I am worthy. I am loved. I am exceptional. And it's the dialogue. It begins in here. And, you know, if you believe in yourself, and you repeat it enough, probably these kids, you know, maybe they won't believe it at first. Maybe they're still learning what that vocabulary word actually means. <laughs> but if you repeat it long enough, it starts to become ingrained in your mindset. So repetition. And, you know, you, you mentioned me overcoming it. And that's what it takes is repetition. I am worthy. I am worthy. I am worthy. I can. I am able. Wow. That mental dialogue is powerful. It's powerful. It is very powerful. Mm-hmm. And I have to share with our audience that not only have you come through all of this, um, you're married now and you're teaching and you also have a a fitness business on the side. You're in great shape. Okay. And you are also now a board member of the Linda Laurel Scholarship Fund. So the very same organization that gave you a scholarship, you're now sitting on our board. Yes. And how does that make you feel? Amazing. You know, I see myself as this kid, you know, this kid, this 16-year-old kid. And I remember, you know, I think the scholarship for me, it was really for my mom. And I feel like the sense of responsibility, I think back of of all her struggles and everything that she went through. And um, there's this saying in Spanish, and, and I tell her, Mommy, sus esfuerzos van a valer la pena. Your struggles will be worthwhile. And so being a, you know, when I received that scholarship, I remember the smile on her face. Mm-hmm. Um, and so even though I, I remember that day, and we, we were all a little uncomfortable in this gala, this fancy gala. <laughs> we felt very out of place. But now I think back, you know, as I mentioned earlier and saying I never imagined I'd be where I am now is I imagined this small kid and this small little brown girl from, you know, the rough pick on the, in the woods now has, I've grown so much and I highly attribute it to receiving that scholarship. And it started in me actually believing that I could. Well, I, I have to say, on, on behalf of the organization, um, you know, we we extended the hand, but you did the work. You did the work. You are phenomenal. And I am so proud of you. And just to know that your heart is so big and that you are giving back of yourself in so many ways every day to those beautiful children who are in your classroom and the, the, the ones that you have mentored along the way um, just makes my heart sing. 
And um, I know that we'll be in, in good hands, not only with the scholarship fund, but I, you know, young people like you give me so much hope. And as long as you and others like you are around, then you're going to be okay. I love you. Oh, thank, thank you. you. So thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much, sweetheart. <laughs> you're the best. You're the best. Thank you very much for watching. We'll see you next time on Our Voices Matter. Oh, thank you. <laughs>